Case number 22-5313 et al. Adrian DaCosta et al. at balance versus Immigration Investor Program Office et al. Mr. Bless for the DaCosta at balance. Mr. Banas for the Vega at balance. Mr. Goldsmith for the Appellees. All right, Mr. Bless. Good morning. <clears throat> May it please the court, my name is Jesse Bless, and I have the distinct honor of representing Adrian and Jade DaCosta in this matter. We'll be asking this court to reverse the decision of the district court and send it back for a decision on the pleadings. I mean, excuse me, the merits. This is about the pleadings. The pleadings that are under a notice requirement. And our complaint set forth a plausible case for unreasonable delay under the Administrative Procedure Act. And in fact, these cases are usually guided by a set of factors under this court's seminal decision in telecommunications that help track. The district court found that we had satisfied two out of the relevant five. We lost three to two, I suppose. But the real error here was that the resolution of facts were decided against our case. I mean, against our side. It was resolved in favor of the moving party. And under a 12B6 standard, that's not appropriate. And in fact, What facts do you think were resolved by the district court? Well, that they had been following a first in, first out methodology under their purported rule. So they took judicial notice of that, correct? And the district court's entitled to take judicial notice? Well, you know, I don't know if you can take judicial notice of facts. You know, he cited to a website that they had where they purport to present their rule of reason, their visa availability approach. We put forth evidence that they didn't follow it. And it's a resolution fact. I mean, that first fact. Well, whether they followed it or not, I think, is a factual question. It's not subject to question. I think that there's been a pretty longstanding practice of relying on public facing agency websites as being not subject to reasonable dispute. And why is that subject to reasonable dispute if the agency is representing public on a public facing website? This is how we do it. Why can't that be taken into account? Sure. Let me break that down. And no one's, they have, and the first fact is really two parts. Is there a rule? And is there a rule that is reasonable? And it's not reasonable if it's not being followed. No, I understand if it's not being followed, I think you would have a factual issue. But that's a rule of reason itself, which is based on the industry practice as explicated on their website. Why can't the court take judicial notice of that? So that's not fact finding. That's taking judicial notice. That's correct. And that's not what we're disputing. We're not disputing that they purported to go forward with a visa availability approach. Our facts were that they weren't following it and had not followed it in this instance. And your facts, so you're saying as a matter of pleading, you've not asserted that they use first in, first out as applied to available, where there are available visas. You assert that they've done something other than that in practice. And where specifically are the allegations of that? Right. So those allegations were, and I have it, I don't know if you want the sites. I'd like the JA pages. We only have appellate's appendix, the AP. I have your appendix. Yes. And do you have, and it has the complaint. And so I'm wondering which paragraphs of the complaint raise that. Right. So if you go forward, so there was 92. Paragraph 92. Yes. Which says plaintiffs invested at least $500,000. I apologize. Let me do a better job for you here. The 96, 97, 149, and 152. And including other investors in the same commercial enterprise. Correct. I guess the question is, how does that, so there may be later filed 
552 petitions as to which there are visa availabilities that don't apply to your client. And that would legitimately, according to their statement of what their policy is, that would be consistent with their policy. So that would be inconsistent. If they had been approving later filed. Well, they can be later filed. They're doing the FIFO, but as conditioned by available visas. And so if there are people in an area that there are more available visas, they're going to prioritize doing that over older where there may be fewer visas. Sure. But in this instance, our visas were available. They were always available. And that's the distinction. So we. I'm sorry. Wouldn't you have to allege that other people from the same country who filed after your clients were getting approved before your client? But you didn't allege anything about what countries these other visas that were getting adjudicated first were coming from. Let me let me just take a step back. So it's not just it's rest of the world. And then there are only a couple of backlog countries. And yet people are calling China, India. So if you're rest of the world, South Africa's rest of the world, you would. Is that I'm sorry, is my understanding of what's on the website is that they look at the country's availability and they take that into account first. Where is it available? And then within each country, they do a FIFO method. It's really visa availability by the visa votes and published by the Department of State each month. It's not by country. So it's not if there if you were subject to it. And the reason there's backlog is because there's a per country cap. But South Africa would not fall in this entire proceeding at the time they filed until today, except for that brief period in the lapse. There were visas available for Asian DaCosta. There was they were never. I had understood it the way Judge Pan describes it, that that visas are made available by country. As you said, there's country caps. And so if the cap is met for a period, then they would halt. And it makes sense to jump over those people if there are visas available and yet assigned. It's not like Ireland, England and so on and so forth. It's is there visas available? Are you rest of the world or are you subject to some type of country cap or is there a backlog? It's not country by country. But it seems that all you alleged was there are people who filed after us who got their visas adjudicated. And it seems like you would have to allege more to create. An issue as to whether the agency is following its method. We also visas were available. And in fact, on a pleading basis, merely meeting factors three and five, showing that the harms from the delay here. And keep in mind, if we could just stick first with whether your allegations were sufficient. It just seems to me that you just alleging that other people who filed after you were getting adjudicated first would not be sufficient to create an issue as to whether the agency is following their rule of reason, which is this visa availability and then FIFO within that. You're saying they're not following. They're saying what their rule is and they're not following it. But for you to sufficiently allege that they're not following it, it seems like you have to say more than people who filed after us are getting their visas. That's not enough. Because under this approach, it's not a strict FIFO approach. For those that were visas available and they're supposed to be processing them first in, first out. But among the available, though, they're different countries and there might not be availability based on what country you're from. Right. So for those that are available, like Mr. DaCosta, they were not following first in, first out. It seems that you would have to allege that there are people from the same country who are getting. Is that your position that there are people from South Africa who filed later who have gotten the visas? We said in the same commercial enterprise because we don't understand the government's rule of reason to ever do it by based on nationality. I'm confused by that. So you say it's certain capped countries and then the rest of the world. I thought they were their only caps for certain places where this program is very popular. Or by the nature of the immigrant visa allocation, they can only have 7 percent per country for all immigrant visas. So if you're subject to that cap, you're going to be placed in a backlog. And so there's backlogs in family and employment based cases. So for an Indian national, for a Chinese national, where they may be coming close to the country cap, the Department of State in its 
mystical powers, come up with a monthly visa bulletin where they'll put an actual priority date, which is the date someone would file the petition. And anyone who filed later does not have a visa available. Anyone who filed before would have a visa available. They would be so, called current. Council, the USIS website says it's by country. It says USIS will now first process petitions for investors for whom a visa is either now or soon will be available. Um, the form captures your country of birth, which will be compared with chart B, indicating visa availability for that country. Right. I think what they mean, though, is sure, but they're not going to designate because there may be subject, there may be countries that become backlogged. Correct. Right. But, but if but, they're but not backlogged, they'll be grouped together. That's not on the website. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think we're, I think what we're talking about, though, is the difficulty here in accepting, you know, taking judicial notice and saying, because Judge Boasberg did not, not say, well, you're from South Africa, so it doesn't matter. You know, that, that wasn't his analysis. He, he did say the analysis that you didn't sufficiently allege that, that they're was, not following their rule as to you. Correct. But he never, he never understood this visa availability approach, and certainly the government has not purported this visa availability visa availability approach this way, that it's by some type of country. And I think this- Wait, I'm sorry. I thought that they, Judge Boasberg took judicial notice of the USIS website, and this is what the website says, by country. And so you're asserting that they're not following their purported rule of reason with respect to your client, but you haven't alleged that, you're, that they haven't done that sufficiently because the rule of reason that has been taken judicial notice of does this by country, and you have not alleged that people from the same country are being processed ahead of your client. That is not even in their motion to dismiss. So let me ask you, is, is your theory that countries that are approaching the cap or that have reached the cap, that they are, should be set aside, but that with respect to, as you say, rest of the world, that that under the policy as they've stated it, that needs to be that needs to be chronologically first in, yeah. first out, even if in their experience there are, you know, six applications a year from uh, one country and 400 from another, and they might want to, yeah. you're saying they can't prioritize as between those. No, in fact, there's a, I mean, there's a lot, this court's decision, Mina Z, X-I-E, that I recited in my reply brief. There's a specific order of consideration under the statute, 8 U.S.C. 1153 E1, that talks about the specific order of consideration that, that visas must be allocated, and it's by priority date. And so it cannot be by nationality. In fact, there's, a, there's also a discrimination provision in the allocation of immigrant visas in the INA that would preclude the type of visa availability approach that currently is on their website. They can't even do that under the law. That would be illegal, and I don't think they do. What they do is they take people where visas are available and there's no rhyme or reason to it. And then the amicus that was submitted before this court showed they took 600 petitions that were filed after our plaintiffs and, and did it. And we're, again, we're on the notice pleading here. We're, this may be a merits decision. And in fact, if they had come back and said, listen, look at all the people who filed, you're well behind. That would be a merits question. Whether you've stated a claim yeah. that the agency has not applied its rule to your client. Right, but that, that's also- But it seems to me that in order for you to state a claim based on what our understanding of the rule is based on the website, which was traditionally noticed, is that it's they look at visa availability for that country, and then USIS will use this information along with other factors to determine which should be processed first. So if you don't allege that there are other people from the same country who are process before you, that is not on a FIFO basis, then you haven't stated a claim that the agency is not applying this program to your client. Well, I don't think satisfying the first track factor is necessary to satisfy Rule 8A of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure. That's not the essential elements of it. Well, I mean, you I think, keep referring to notice pleading, which harks back to Conley versus sure. Gibson, but, you know, we're in the Twombly-Iqbal world. There has to be a yeah. plausibly pleaded Absolutely. basis, and it doesn't have to be, you know, Absolutely. proof that would win at trial. But yeah. but we're, I think we're just trying to understand whether 
there is, and, you know, clearly the government will be, will fill us in on what its theory is. But I had not understood your description, the description you're giving us today to be your understanding of the policy based on your papers. Well, I mean, it's not my understanding. It's, it's really the Immigration and Nationality Act requirement. They, there is no way, and I don't understand their, their visa availability approach to, to designated by nationality. And in fact, that would not be appropriate under the law in this court's decision in Meaning Z. You can't do that. You have to take it by priority date unless you have no visas available because of the other competing provisions of law, which are the country cap. So there's, there, is no, there is no way in which you can start siloing people by country if there are visas available, they would go by priority. So your your view is that you must take by priority date globally, unless and until the country cap is reached, and then you put that aside and you continue to take people by filing date yeah. globally. And, and that was the purpose of the visa availability approach. I mean, let's not forget that they came up with that visa availability approach after our clients filed the petition because they wanted to reduce the processing time. And what they said was, it makes little sense for us to focus on cases and petitions where visas are not available because of the country backlog. So we're going to focus on those where visas are current and available. Makes sense. Okay? No one's disputing that. In fact, however, though, once you get into the, the queue where visas are available for the rest of the world, it must go by priority date. And that's not what happened. Just as a matter of, of sort of how the program works, the period when your petition is pending, the investment is tied up in the project, but the period of time during which it's tied up in the project is not counted against the minimum period of investment required to be eligible for the green card, right? So it's only the, is it six years that so one has to you have to maintain the investment? actually have to uh, sustain your investment through the removal of, of your conditional residency for two years now. Um, so that means after this 526 uh, petition would be approved, let's say, then you have to file for an immigrant visa. Okay? Then you have to come in on that immigrant visa. And then within, I guess, 90 days prior to the two-year anniversary, you have to petition to remove the conditions because you're a conditional resident. You have to sustain your investment another two years. So we're talking, so that's why the delays are so impactful. Am, am I misremembering that there's some six-year commitment? I'm misremembering. Um, there's not a six-year okay. You have to ten years, you have to create 10 full-time jobs. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, you have to sustain your investment. And this is why. But only, only two years after you get. Well, this is the practical difficulty, whether you're a backlog or you're going on a border. Let's say they started going last in, first out. Your term of investment now has just been extended. Now, what is it, 60 months for a petition? It used to be 19 months when our, our clients filed. So that, that is added. That period of investment is added on. So this is why the delays are harmful. But I do want to just make one point. I, I didn't get, you know, but crack factors three and five, in this case, were found for our clients. The delays here had impacted their health and welfare. So track factors three and five. And cases from appellate courts have found that that standing alone was sufficient to get you past the pleading stage. And that's what we asked the courts to Give our clients a shot before the district court to go to summary judgment. All right. Thank you. Mr. Bannis. Thank you, Honors, and may it please the court. My name is Brad Bannis. I represent the Vegas in this case. Um, Judge Pan, I want to try to answer your question. Um, when you reference uh, the website, you, you also reference chart B. It said that on there. Chart B is something the State Department creates. So to see the contents of Chart B, you need to go to another website. Um, if you Google Visa Bulletin, it pops up real quickly. If you go to Chart B on the Visa Bulletin, you go to the right category for uh, the employment-based fifth, employment fifth preference. You'll see um, the distinctions that my colleague was talking about. You'll see that uh, the caps only apply to two countries currently in the EB-5 space, and that's that's the People's Republic of China and that's India. Um, those two countries do have their own separate columns in the visa bulletin, in chart B and chart A. But I think aren't there also, also limits, like you can only have but so, so many percentage of the visas can be from each country. 
So there's going to be a cap within each country as well. Not on chart B, Your Honor. Um, they only identify the countries uh, that have already hit the cap, okay, and that have this waiting line. So literally, the, the term for the for in the, the the column that would apply to both my clients as well as my colleagues' clients is called rest of the world. Um, and again, if you go to the visa bulletin, see chart A, chart B, that's how it's done because they only identify uh, priority dates that would be current for countries that are backlogged. The EB five. That's historically been China in just in the last six months, uh, India or so. And I think this whole discussion does get to the point that the lower court of this circuit is not applying Rule 12b6 standards to unreasonable delay cases. To answer me uh, the same question that I asked of uh, the Costas counsel, where in your complaint do you allege, and I think you actually have something about political favoritism, like where do you allege um, Departing from the stated uh, approach. Your Honor, I'm looking at JA 10 through 12. Um, we have paragraph 51. They do not follow first in, first out. Uh, paragraphs uh, 55 through 59 allege these availability approach is not a complete approach because really we don't know how they assign these cases, Your Honor, um, because A, the agencies never had to prove it. Well, for example, 51, they don't adjudicate forms on a person for that basis. That's completely conclusory. The plausible allegations to support that are. Your Honor, if we continue to read the, 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 the complaint, we learned that we allege that the agency uh, expedited hundreds of people ahead of mine because they were in a project that was favored by the administration at that time. Mm -hmm. um, and, and again, we provided 200 pages of emails in response to our motion to dismiss that the court absolutely refused to look at. Those are absolutely relevant and available to look at at a previous stage. Uh, t just tell me which pages to look at. Um, it's around those. 218 in the uh, joint appendix, Your Honor. 218, 218? Yes, Your Honor. And what you're going to see is that through a FOIA, because again, we can't get past the motion to dismiss to get a record of discovery here, um, through a FOIA application that uh, was returned after we filed this case, we see emails from the investor program office identifying this project, this expedite, describing it as problematic and trying to find a solution. And, you know, it's all redacted, but they discuss litigation exposure. That is that is uh, well beyond what we need to do at the Rule 12b6 stage. Your Honor, you said it best, Iqbal and Twombly. We live in that world, and unreasonable delay cases are not outside of that world. I'd point you to a case called Gonzalez in the Fourth Circuit and a case called Barrios Garcia in the Sixth Circuit. Admittedly, they do involve different immigration benefits, but this is not an immigration case. This is an unreasonable delay case, and unreasonable delay principles apply across the different immigration benefits. Those are the cases that remanded for discovery? Those are cases that said the government's motion to dismiss was improperly looked at because this is 12b6, and we don't know the facts yet, mm -hmm. Your Honor. Um, and the Sixth Circuit's case... If you read it through, you're going to see it rejects every argument that the government makes here because they treat these cases identically around the country. They file the same motion to dismiss, and that one was out of the Eastern District of Kentucky, as they do here in D.C., as they do in Los Angeles, Your Honor. Because, again, they use these what seem like uh, natural ways to process applications, but they never have to prove it because once they lose a the motion to dismiss, Your Honor, they settle the cases. So they're not ever forced to prove it what their actual rule of reason is, whether they follow it, whether they uh, provide favoritism to certain projects over others. And that's all we're asking for, Your Honor. I readily admit we could get through discovery and we could lose, but we don't even get that opportunity at this point, Your Honor. And the lower court is divided. And I understand the lower court in this particular district because of the unique nature of District of Columbia is overrun with these cases. But granting motions to dismiss and doing violence to Rule 12b6 principles that no one disputes is not the way to handle it, Your Honor. I would point in the Sixth Circuit and in the Fourth Circuit, they haven't all of a sudden been overrun by unreasonable delay cases in the immigration context simply because those courts have said motions to dismiss in this context are inappropriate. Um, and so for that reason, I, I think, um, Judge Pillard, I think you're doing exactly right. We go to the four corners of the complaint. We give every specifically a specific non-conclusive allegation, the presumption of truth. We assume it's accurate. And to the extent there's a dispute between something the government has averred in their motion to dismiss and our fact, that fact of dispute 
precludes a finding, precludes granting the motion to dismiss. Again, these are not disputed legal principles we're talking about. This is Iqbal and Twombly. This court and the lower court apply Rule 12b-6 consistently in every other brand of cases except unreasonable delay cases in the immigration context. And I find it interesting that when you look at unreasonable delay cases out of the District of Columbia for, say, the Bureau of Indian Appeals, there's two that the government always cites. One's called Mashpee and one's called Mukwege. You know, those cases went to discovery. They didn't lose the motion to dismiss stage. They lost at summary judgment. The agencies in those cases had to prove the facts. And at motion to dismiss stage, it's a very low. It depends on the complaint. So it's fact-specific. Now, on the blanket expedites to new commercial enterprises, you haven't alleged that has happened since your clients filed their petition. You cite something that happened before under a prior administration. So why is that enough? Your Honor, it went through 2020. That's well after my client filed. My client filed in November of 2019, the two that are still accurate. And they didn't cancel until 2020. Cancel what? They didn't cancel this expedite, Your Honor. The new administration took over in 2022. And so, yes, they suffered. And there's 271 at least immigrants that were decided ahead of time in about 90 days. That was the average the government admits. If it really does take an adjudicator 8.6 hours, that's pushing people back by a year, essentially. And that's inappropriate here. Did you allege that timing overlap? Where in your complaint is that? Well, Your Honor, I would point you in that paragraph 67 through 71. And then at the end of paragraph 145 through 156, Your Honor. And again, keep in mind, when I alleged this and filed this complaint, Your Honor, we didn't have that FOIA yet. And the government was claiming, no, we don't do blanket expedites. This isn't something that we do. We would never do that. And the website that you see, Your Honor, they've all been taken down because those folks are now concerned about it. But this gave not only that regional center a significant commercial advantage, which is what the adjudicators recognize the problem, but it also delayed my clients and delayed most folks after them. And, Your Honor, I just want to point out one last thing. I know my time is up. But the track factor four, we've been focused on one for most of the time. But track factor four seems to be, let's put it this way, I just lost a motion to dismiss in Texas solely on the basis of track factor four. And this court is uniquely suited to discuss it because around the country, on the different circuits, they look to the D.C. for, you know, expertise in administrative law, which I think is appropriate. And they cite this case called the Mashpee Tribe. And Mashpee Tribe generally, when the government cites it, stands to the proposition that if you're going to get pushed to the front of a quote line, that mandamus shouldn't lie or an unreasonable case shouldn't lie. You can lose exclusively on that. This court really needs to take that on and discuss it and explain whether it applies in immigration context simply because in that case, we were talking about a administrative process that can only be done consecutively. It was an undisputed fact that literally all of the agency's resources went to one application at a time. And if they move that second application, all of the resources would be on the second application. And for that reason, there are only 10 applications pending. And if they move them, you could see there's a certain difference. So what's your answer here to why it wouldn't be line jumping for the court to grant relief to your clients? Because, Your Honor, there's no line. The agency can grant hundreds of these a week, if not more than that. I thought the whole position was there is a line, but that they're taking people out of line. Your Honor, we allege multiple times there's no line. I think the line is a very powerful metaphor. But I thought that FIFO, the whole concept of filing date being the sequence in which the agency is supposed to process these applications, that is a line, no? Your Honor, I don't think that holds up. So they're claiming that but not doing it? Or you're saying they're not even claiming that? They claim first in, first out in everything. Yeah, and so that is a line. And you're saying, well, they're not doing that. So they should just throw it in the gutter? You just totally lost me. I'm very good at losing people. Let's describe the line, okay? Let's talk about the line. The line is at least 26 adjudicators wide. Okay, so there are 26 lines. Okay, there's 26 lines. 
Or there's one line like you do when you're going to TSA, you're in one line, and then you go to the next available. That's a great question of fact, Your Honor. I would love to know how it actually works. But there's 26, 26 at least, right? And some, and again, this is all now guesswork because we don't know because the reason, excuse me, their visa availability approach, they don't talk about how they actually assign the case to adjudication. They only talk about things in the abstract. But some of them are deciding, it's supposed to be prioritized that they've already made a decision on a regional center that the, that could be five applicants associated with that, that could be 500 applicants associated with that, right? I think so they've now just claimed that because they realized they didn't have authority for that to expedite regional centers. No. I'm not talking about expediting, Your Honor. Oh, okay. That's a special line. I guess that's the- Okay. So when you talk about decision on a regional center, how does that fit into the rule of reason that we look first in, first out? I think that's a question for the government because I don't know the answer. My best guess, because again, we haven't gotten to discovery, we haven't got to test their factual affirmance under oath. A regional center, no one invests in a regional center. Regional center partners up with businesses, okay? Actually, I stayed in a hotel that was built with EB-5 money last night. So it's Marriott, right? Marriott is the new commercial enterprise, and that's where the foreign nationals put their money. Now, that Marriott has to associate with a regional center, an organization that's been designated and certified by USCIS to help promote these projects and grow them and have, you know, multi-million dollar investments rather than just smaller ones. So my understanding of the visa availability approach is if we have already reviewed the fundamentals of that project associated with that regional center, and there's 45 applications because it was a $20 million project, then we're going to prioritize that because we've already done a lot of the heavy lifting. We've already looked and determined whether job creation was there, whether the economic econometric analysis was appropriate, and now we're just going to look at your source of funds. And so that plays into this assignment versus just passing them through. We don't know how that works. Those 26 adjudicators, and by the way, it could be more, Your Honor, right? They have 30-some adjudicators just for fraud. There's a process to apply for expediting. Are you saying this is separate and apart from the expedition? That's exactly right. If you're an individual and you have humanitarian basis and you say, please, please, please expedite, sure. And that's available to all visa petitions. So the basis for the expediting process is an individual based on your hardships? That's right, Your Honor. The expedite here. A blanket expedite for a project is a separate thing, and your position is that there's no part of the rule of reason that addresses that. That's exactly right, Your Honor. And just to be very specific, what was expedited here was at that time called a Form I-924. And a Form I-924 was what a regional center files to get kind of pre-approval for one of their projects. The pre-approval meaning, yep, we agree with the job creation. We agree with the econometric analyses. And then these regional centers would go out and sell these securities and say, look, the government's already approved our exemplar. And so come join us. And you can imagine it's a very good marketing technique. We've been pre-approved, show your money came legally, and then you'll get a decision. So what was approved in the trial project was that, the Form I-924. Yet they decided to adjudicate in an expeditious way 271 individual applications totally different. None of those individuals had to say, hey, you know, my mother's dying in the United States. I would like to come stay with her and see her through the end of her life. I can only do that with an immigrant. And you're saying that they took them out of line. It wasn't FIFO for those people based on their country. Based on those emails around the government says their average time was 3.3 months while they were reporting on the public website, 62 months, Your Honor. And this is our problem with public websites and taking judicial notice. We've alleged disputes of fact, and the lower courts just ignore them. And they say, well, it's on the CIS website, so it's gospel. And I would suggest that through our complaint, because that's what we're limited to, that and the attachments that you'll see, we allege that those are all incorrect and provide substantial corroborating evidence for that. So I guess then, just in terms of the way you plead this, I'm looking at parts of your complaint. It seems like you would have to plead that they have blanket expedites and there were ones that affected your clients. Which we did, Your Honor. It looks different to me, what you said. We plead they're illegal. We plead it's a product of favoritism because there's no mechanism under the 
statute regulations or policies to agree to adjudicate an entire 271 people because half of those people haven't even been solicited or signed up yet when the expedite was granted. Um, and you're looking now at paragraph 146, I guess, that's what I'm looking at, that upon yes. information and belief accorded significant processing time benefits to certain projects, even though not authorized via regulation, and then see, for example, this project. Correct, Your Honor. And again, I would urge you to look at the, the documents attached to my response to the motion to dismiss, because again, if we went through discovery, these are the things I would get, and I'd be able to show, or at least I'd be able to present to the court, hey, here's what's actually going on. Now make a judgment on summary judgment, because the way we get rid of the flood of cases on delays in the lower courts is decisions on summary judgment, so that we have something that as a matter of law, I can tell my client, well, in this situation, we can't do that. Otherwise, if we keep this motion to dismiss rule, this low-risk, high-delay strategy from the government side, these cases are going to continue to come in, and they're going to continue to create significant splits and do violence to undisputed Rule 12 principles. And for that reason, Your Honor, we would ask that you vacate the lower court and um, allow us to finish the case. Just a, one point of information. When you're talking about these um, blanket expedites, is that the same as the exemplar approval that you allege, or is that a different thing? Totally different, Your Honor. Um, exemplar is something that's been in the industry for the last 10 years, and even the, the new law that just got passed March of last year codified that. Um, and so exemplars are just a separate form that basically allow a regional center uh, in the project to get certainty and provide certainty to their potential investors. Because, uh, Judge Lord, as you noted, these folks are investing a significant amount of money and creating a significant number of jobs. And when they come into this and they say, okay, I'm going to put up my... Now it is $800,000. Um, what's it going to look like? And you have to say, well, I think under the system, you would say, well, let's give it a year to get approved. Then you have two years in your conditional status. And then we apply your conditional status. You can get your money back after that decision. So you're looking at probably tying up your money, let's say, three to five years. Right now, their, their money is tied up for five years before any of that even starts, Your Honor. And so now you have these new issues that are being caused by this delay of this whole concept of it's called redeployment, where they have to keep their money at risk. So the financiers who accepted their money originally, you know, the project's over, the hotel's built. So now they have to keep their money at risk in something else. So they take the money and they redeploy it into something else that the original investor never knew about or could know about because these processing times have really um, done a number on the program. The exemplar so approval is is a tool that potentially a, a regional center that is trying to administer blanket expedites might use? No. <laughs> so, so when you say blanket expedites, to my knowledge, that, I think, yeah. To my knowledge, there's only ever been one, and you're looking at it. Um, it I don't says, know. though, that it's a rural set aside. Is there a different statute that applies to this particular blanket expedite because it's a rural? No statute, regulation, or policy uh, tells you how to request a blanket expedite because it's Something that's no, made but it up. says the law creates new EB-5 visa categories, including rural, subject to a different queue. So if this expedite is subject to a different queue, then your client was not. No, you're right. Um, the rural set-asides uh, were only enacted in March 15th of 2022 under the EB-5 Reform and Integrity Act. But I I'm just going by what's cited in your complaint, and this website says it's a separate queue from what your clients are in. So this wouldn't Could you support... I'm sorry. I'm... I just clicked on the link in your complaint, oh, okay. the eb5fast.com, and it says it's a different queue. That's so your client's not affected by this. That's because the website link you clicked on has been changed because what you're looking at could not have been in place in 2019 when we filed. And the blanket expedite, you're not going to find it anywhere. So I guess where I am is I think you could theoretically state a claim if you have actually alleged that there are blanket expedites that are hurting your clients, but I don't see it on the face of your complaints and what you've cited doesn't support it. So I'm just now just trying to see if you've actually alleged facts that would support that theory, which I think is a valid theory, but I don't see the facts. Your Honor, I would say, um, again, we're dealing with the problem of delay. The EB-5 FAST website has been changed. The pictures you see came from uh, a, a, a website that goes back in time on the internet and gets screenshots because they changed it. So what, what am I supposed to do here? It's, this is what you've cited. I don't see well, in your complaint the facts to support your 
theory. We certainly. So I guess you lose because you don't, the face of your complaint doesn't support it? Your Honor, we allege that this delayed our clients. We allege that the agency's derivative. But you have to support that with facts. Where are the facts? Your Honor, we don't have to win. No, you don't have to win, but it has to be plausible. You've stated a theory. You have to have some factual allegations to support it. Your Honor, first off, I would say that the court below didn't even look at all our factual allegations. It ignored half of them. That's the first thing. The second thing is we have to give our factual allegations the benefit of the doubt. And even if they're doubtful, assume they're true. And so when we allege, they decided 271 people from 2017 to 2021. I'm just looking at your complaint, and I don't see the facts. That's all I'm saying. I understand, Your Honor, and I do believe that the complaint speaks for itself. I do think that this court can review the documents attached to the motion to dismiss because they're referenced by, incorporated by reference in the complaint. And for that reason, we think that this court should force the lower courts here to actually apply Rule 12b-6. Thank you. I just have one more question. Health and welfare, you allege that the delay affects health and welfare. It's clear that it affects the tying up of the economic resources. But isn't that economic harm, not health and welfare? Your Honor, I think that, yes, tying up money is economic. But I think that that track factor is kind of a duality. Does the benefit that's being delayed impact the person's health and welfare, or is it an economic regulation? I think it's very stark. And I think here, the significant imposition on their daily lives is what we allege. They're just being deprived of the ability to immigrate to the United States for years and years. And imagine passing the bar, right, and then the state saying, oh, we'll get you your certificate to practice here in a second, and then waiting four years. During that four years, sure, you're going to get it eventually. But your life would be on hold. And that's the hardship they're suffering. And that goes to their health and welfare, not their ability to go earn money as a lawyer, right, in that metaphor. Yeah, although that theory seems very broad in the sense that it's difficult to wait for any important benefit. And so that track factor would basically virtually always be met. Prolonged uncertainty about a significant benefit. I think, Your Honor, that it would go to the weight of that factor. I think it's, is this economic or is this health and welfare? This is health and welfare, but given this particular context, this specific case, it doesn't weigh that heavily in their favor, Your Honor. I would just point you again to the Barrios case, which my colleague cited, where they say, yeah, alleging that you have legal disabilities under the law and that impacts your health and welfare, that's sufficient. That alone is sufficient to state a claim. And that's applying Rule 12b-6 standard as it's intended. Thank you, Your Honor. Mr. Goldsmith. Your Honor, may it please the Court. As a matter of law, appellants fail to allege facts indicating delay in adjudicating their investor visa petitions was so egregious as to warrant judicial intervention. And under ICPAW, there's a line that you have to nudge across from the mere possibility to plausibility. Right. You're exactly right about that. But, Mr. Goldsmith, it would be really helpful if you would sketch out for us your understanding of what the government system is, what the rule of reason is, how the caps interact with the first-in, first-out asserted rule that the government follows. Yes, Your Honor. I will try to do so. Let me just say these are issues that weren't exactly raised below and were not really fleshed out in the brief. But I will try to address your contention, I mean, your question about how the caps work. So the availability of visa. Well, more broadly, if you could affirmatively explain what is the rule of reason, what is the policy that the agency follows with respect to this program? Right. So around 2000, when they were dealing with the backlog of these visa petitions, they sought to change how they went about processing these petitions to consider and to not just consider but to focus on the availability of visas because not all petitions have a visa number available due to these statutory caps, per-country caps. Now, the visa bulletin and the allocation of visa numbers is handled exclusively by the State Department. So USCIS isn't directly involved in that. But they looked to the State Department to see and tried to prioritize those 
petitions where, if approved, the person, their priority date is current, they could obtain a visa. So whereas before 2000, they looked at, it was basically grounded in first in, first out, they switched and have tried to take into account and more than take into account the focus on visibility and to consider that in trying to deal with this matter. Did you say they switched to more than take into account visa availability? They're focused on, before 2000, it was grounded in first in, first out, and then they moved to visa availability. I thought that was still, I thought the department's position was that it was still first in, first out, subject to visa availability. It combines both. Your Honor is correct. So what about the way the appellants have described the program as wrong? They say, when a country has reached the cap, set that aside and don't insist on chronologically processing the applications from those countries, because even if the application is fully processed, there's not going to be available visa. So set those aside and then do the rest of the world chronologically without regard to where the applications are coming from. And then if another country reaches its cap, set it aside. That is how I take it. Their understanding is based on public descriptions by USCIS. Is that not your understanding of what the rule of reason is? I'm sorry, I don't have an answer to that question, other than that this was not the issue that was litigated, other than to say they described on their website how it operates. I took this to absolutely be the issue that was litigated. It was described as first in, first out, subject to visa availability. That's what I understood the complaint to say. That's what I understand the district court to have accepted. That's what I thought your, well, I may have a different view from my colleagues about judicial notice, but it's pleaded that that's what your policy is. And you're saying, no, actually, first in, first out isn't the primary guiding principle. It's now visa availability. Can you describe what you mean when you say? I was not very clear, and I apologize to the court. There was an allegation that it's done in strictly first in, first out. That's not correct. How so? Can you give an example of putting aside India and China or any other country that has met its cap? How in doing first in, first out would the staff take into account visa availability? Your Honor, that's the question I don't have an answer to. That seems pretty important. You don't know actually what the rule of reason is. Not beyond what they said on the website. And your understanding of what they said on the website is, again? Yeah. They basically do things in first in, first out with taking into account the availability of visa numbers. Now, there was this situation for approximately nine months where they didn't have the authority to approve petitions in connection with the regional center program. So they didn't just sit on their hands. They adjudicated petitions that were called stand loans that were not part of the regional center program. So I guess you could have a situation where someone filed later who got adjudicated earlier because of this circumstance. And there also are situations where there's a procedure where you can request an expedite. But I think Judge Boasberg hit the nail on the head where he said that you can't now complain some other petitioners benefited from this process when the appellants in this case never sought to use this expedite procedure. That there are facts to connect the contention that there were erroneously approved expedite requests. Can I go back to what the websites say about the rule of reason? Because it does, there is a website that says there's an annual per country allocation of EB-5 visas. This is, I'm trying to tell you what I'm looking at. It's a website that says, use of suggests process for managing EB-5 visa petition inventory. 
And if you go to that website, it does say there's a per country allocation. And I think what Judge Pillard is interested in, and I am too, is if you go to the page about visas, it says two countries have met their cap. And the question is whether there's sort of a country, still a country by country cap, or is everybody else lumped together in a FIFO system? And this website suggests that there is still a per country allocation. Is that true? So that in order to allege that you're not following your rule of reason, somebody would have to allege that somebody from the same country has been processed before them, even though they filed after. That's kind of what I'm interested in. And again, I have to apologize to the court. I don't have any answer to that question. I don't think it was raised with this distinction between the two. And I apologize. I should have an answer. Um, I, I would also like to point out that although there's no bright line rule, district courts have in, in this district, in this circuit, that delays of five, six, seven years are generally unreasonable. But here we have delays of less than three years between when the petitions were filed in November 2019 and when litigation commenced. And that for approximately nine of those months, USCIS lacked congressional authorization to approve petitions. And they've can, can you address the blanket expedites? Yes. So that's not part of the rule of reason. So if there were blanket expedites, that would not be following your rule of reason, correct? So there, there's no, there's probably no such thing as a blanket expedite. There's a, a procedure for requesting expedites. They're, they're raising allegations as to uh, that, that they were improperly granting requests to expedite 2017 in connection with an equestrian center or a uh, international horse show in 2018, and that the effects of those continued on through 2018. Um, and the question of whether or not they were properly uh, granting these expedites, I, I think, has nothing to do with whether or not uh, they can, they're, they're entitled to a judicial order. I'm sorry, your friend on the other side, I thought, said that that expedite was in effect through 2022, or somehow it, it did affect his client's place in the queue. I don't think there are any factual allegations to connect those allegations to the, these particular petitions. And I, I don't believe, for the reasons Judge Boesberg outlined, that the question of whether or not uh, they were properly granting expedites, or whether some of the expedites should have been granted, but other later ones shouldn't have been granted, are a basis for awarding um, judicial relief these with respect to these would you agree there's there's sort of a legal theory issue and then there's a factual allegations issue if there were i think it would be a sufficient legal theory to say that you're saying you have a rule of reason it's fifo subject to visa availability but the agency is actually doing something that's not subject to the rule of reason which is taking a project and expediting all the eb5 applications associated with that project that would theoretically state a claim, but if there are no factual allegations to back it up, then that complaint would still be dismissed. Do you agree with that? So I, I agree that there's no factual allegations to back that up. I would ask the court to consider it. But it, what's your answer to whether that theory would be sufficient? But perhaps not be based on this court's precedent and citizens for responsibility and ethics in Washington. The Trump decision from 2019 was a mandamus case in which uh, this court held that district court may properly consider a memo on its website at a motion to dismiss stage, citing it all. But even though the, the very fact that there's a memo, there's a, a, a policy doesn't guarantee that that policy is, uh, is that, that policy is being followed. And the reason is that plaintiff must falsely allege that the government is defying the law. Isn't that intention with your position that what is on the website is the rule of reason? You're, you're trying to rely yeah. on what's on the website to say, yes. this is the yeah. rule of reason, this is what we do. Correct. And now I'm saying, if you're not following that rule of reason, is that a basis to challenge you? And you're saying, no, because we don't have to follow the policy. How can that be? No, no, no. no. I, I, of, course, of course, the government has to follow its own policies. If the government's not following its policies, that's a real problem. Um, but it doesn't follow, what I'm saying is it doesn't follow logically that if they did something they granted some expedites that they shouldn't have granted, uh, that these of, of the 
13,000 plus petitions pending, that these four petitions then get ordered adjudicated. But if you granted policies, blanket expedites that are in conflict with your rule of reason and it affected the petitioners by bumping them out of line, why wouldn't they have a cause of action? Because you're not following your rule of reason, so you can't rely on that rule of reason if you're not following it. Well, the fact that particular adjudicators may have made mistakes and granted a request under the agency's policy, it should not have been. That by itself is not enough to argue. Is it not? I mean, so they don't have access to information. You're, I take it, saying there is a FIFO policy subject to caps. One assumes that that's first in, first out. There may be various other carve-outs, lawful or not, that have caused some later filed applications to be decided earlier. But assume each of those is either legitimate or just a done deal, still credit our use of FIFO subject to caps. And I think they're saying, why should we credit that if we hear about a lot of later filers who are getting approved, why should we assume your version of the facts, which is that, well, that was a horse show and, well, that's an abandoned policy that was authorized then but is no longer. They've raised some questions about the adherence to the rule of reason that the government posits. I understand, but this court has said that the track factors are not Thank you. 
That's what we want. That's what we just want to do, stay in court. Thank you, Your Honor. All right, did you want to hear from Mr. Bannis? Okay, one minute. Thank you, Honors. Um, if, if indeed the government's accurate, this is a lie, then any blanket expedite that's unlawful pushes my clients back by definition um, because it's a lie. They're, they're getting thrown in the grocery store. You just have to allege that there is blanket expedite. Well, remember, the blanket expedite was a one-time thing done in 2017 that extended all the way through 2021. Why do you think it extended? Why do you think it extended to 2021? They said it was over. Um, the government's uh, emails indicate that they stopped expediting these in 2021. And they sent out letters to uh, investors who expected the expedite and said, oh, we're not doing that anymore. And again, you, then you see, and then they want to do an investigation. They stopped until the new administration came in, did an investigation, and um, wrote a lot of memos to try to protect themselves. And for that reason, there is no rhyme or reason to this process, and that's why we stated an unreasonable delay claim. Thank you, Honors.